All right, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 13. Uh, we're, we're, we're detouring from, from Genesis for six weeks, I think, seven weeks, Se- six weeks. So it's a six-week detour. We, we got through the first section of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, which is, it stands in its own, in its own right. As we go into chapter 12 of Genesis, seven weeks from today, uh, the next big section in Genesis is the life of Abraham, which goes for, I think it's like 25 chapters or through chapters. I think it maybe goes through chapter 25. So that's 10, 14 chapters, something like that. So it's a long stretch to get through the next section. Uh, as we concluded last week, my heart was to kind of take a break um, just to kind of, because we're, we're entering in, you know, we're not a liturgical church, we're not Catholic, but uh, Lent is something that Catholics do, and it's something that you see on the news between like Mardi Gras and, and uh, Ash Wednesday and all of these events where there's like this six-week focus um, just sort of like in preparing uh, for Easter. And so with the break of Genesis or where we reach in Genesis, I thought it would be good to sort of focus on getting ready for Easter. And we can do that through John chapter 13 to John chapter 17. It's this huge section in the Gospel of John. It's literally a quarter of the book. So the Gospel of John is 21 chapters. Uh, The Apostle John, when he wrote out his letter trying to share who Christ was so that people could respond to him, he dedicates a quarter of his writing to basically a few hours. It's it's, it's mind-boggling when you think about it. So when we think of the Lord's Supper, this painting that we, I have behind me that sort of depicts the Last Supper, um, we think of it as being like this quick, short event. But John chapter 13, all the way through John chapter 17, John records this evening for us. And so the next six weeks, as we move from John chapter 13 to John chapter 20 on Easter, uh, this this... This is all a, just a 24-hour window. Um, well, you add on a couple days for the resurrection for the last chapter, but you get, my, you get what I'm saying. Um, so the focus here is about what Jesus was about to go through leading to the cross. Uh, Swindoll says on this section, John takes great care to note the timing of Jesus' last meal with his disciples and his subsequent ordeal. Before the end of this section, he will establish a clear connection between the Passover lamb and Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, I'm going to read the first verse, and then we can pray, and then we'll look at our our passage for today. Let's pray first. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, as we enter in this this section of John chapter 13 through, through 17 over the next few weeks as we look at this this last evening in which uh, Jesus was betrayed, uh, this last evening when he really gives his final instructions to the apostles um, prior to his arrest and crucifixion. Father, we pray that you would lead us uh, through this section, that you would help us to understand uh, what is being said or what was said and how it applies to our lives and May you paint a, a clear picture of who Jesus was and what he did for us um, and who he is today. 
and all of his glory and all of his splendor. We thank you that through him we can experience uh, forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that through him uh, we can experience eternal life with you. And so, Father, we pray that you would draw us close to yourself as we spend the next few weeks in this section. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, John chapter 13, verse 1. It's the only verse I'm going to read to start out with. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. All right, so we enter this section. We haven't been going through John, but, but he begins this transition. Now, before the feast of the, the Passover, the disciples have spent uh, three years with Jesus. They have entered into to Jerusalem. They've been going through this time in Jerusalem through the other accounts. Uh, Jesus is getting uh, harassed by the leaders He's pushing back on the leaders. He's gaining this huge momentum. People who are just overwhelmed um, by his teaching, that he taught with authority, and he taught like no, none of the other teachers, that he, that he had clarity and simplicity in what he said. And so now they come to this, this last night, the feast of the Passover. Now, the Passover is a celebration that the Jews celebrate. It's something that happens every single year. And it's, it's, a, it's a memorial of sorts when they think back to the Exodus and they were slaves in Egypt and all of the plagues came through. And then finally on that last night, uh, they were told to slaughter a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and the angel of the Lord would come through and would take uh, the firstborn of every child unless the blood was there to protect them. And so as the, as the, the Jews were spared in Egypt and they began their process to to, to leave Egypt out of the, the yoke of slavery. Uh, they were told to, to remember this event. And so here we are in this night. They're still reflecting on the Passover. Jesus would ultimately become that ultimate sacrifice, and he would uh, replace this, becoming the Passover and becoming the perfect sacrifice, uh, being our forgiveness of sins so that we could have life with God And we're told that Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so now he's he's poured everything into the disciples. He's equipped them, he's trained them, he's prepared them for what they need to do following his departure. Uh, He goes on in verse 2, during supper... The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. So we're told a couple of things here. First, we're introduced uh, to Judas. We know that Judas is the man who would betray Jesus. If we go to Luke's account, in Luke, te- he tells us that at this point, Judas already had the money in his pocket jingling around. Like he, he had been paid to betray, betray Jesus already. And so as this story sort of unfolds, especially today, 
everything that's happening, Judas knows what's going on. None of the other guys have a clue about what has happened on his account. We're told here that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. As you read John, I remember one seminary professor, he said to me that as you read John, you have to think of a you the whole time. And I'm like, a you? He's like, Jesus came from God, he came to earth, and then he returned back to where he came from. It's just a short time, but he's God. He's, his his uh, history is an eternity with God. His time has now reached the end. He's fulfilled his mission or was about to fulfill his mis- mission, and then he was to return. They're sitting at the table. I, I've, we, we can only speculate what it looked like. Um, <clears throat> but this night, as they went to this room, we know a couple of things. We know that he sent a couple of, uh, a couple of apostles to go and to prepare this room, to go to the owner, to say, hey, have this room ready for me. Don't have anybody else there. I want total privacy. Um, I don't want to be distracted. And so they got the room ready. That, However it was arranged, it was set up like this little VRBO for them, and and there would be no distractions. Nobody was there. There'd be no servant. There'd be nobody to serve. And so they all <clears throat> go in. And because of the arrangement, there was, there was a particular event that was missed. Uh, it would be normal to have a, a servant present as the people entered the house to wash their feet. Um, if, if there wasn't a servant, there would be somebody... Uh, you know, the most humble person within the group would have the task of, of washing the other, the disciple the, or the, the people who ever entered the house. That would be their responsibility to wash the feet. And so you have this scene where they're all sitting there, and I don't, you don't know if Jesus is like looking around going, who's going to do it? Like, is anybody going to, is anybody going to take this job that nobody wants to do and wash each other's feet? And we know from other accounts, as we piece together uh, the stories of this, this last night, we know that uh, the, the apostles were arguing amongst themselves. Like, we know that the end is near. We know that his kingdom is going to be established. We know that he's number one, but we want to know who's number two. And they're all arguing about who's going to be the greatest amongst them. Like, they're like, hey, we're in the inner circle. And there's just this sort of, like, picture of them failing in this moment. I think what Jesus wanted to see is for all of them to say, no, 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 let me wash your feet. Let me take this task that nobody wants to do. Let me humble myself and do this. Nobody does it. They all sit down, and then Jesus begins to prepare himself to do this. And so while they're all squabbling to be the greatest, the one who actually is the greatest is the one who humbles himself to do the, the, the action that's expected of the lowest person. And so he gets the towel, he girds himself, then he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel from which he was girded. We, we can only, like, imagine uh, what, what this would be like for not in the sense of somebody washing your feet. Like I get that that's not a part of our culture. That's not normal for us. So it would be very weird for us because this just not isn't a part of our lifestyle. But for them, as they had sandals and dust and dirt, this was like a very common practice. They were used to, to having 
their feet washed, like going to the barber and getting your hair cut or something, you know, something normal. But Jesus, the one who is the, the, the most senior of the group, here he is doing it, and he shouldn't be doing this. This would be, you know, the thing that comes to my mind would be like at a family meal, and it's like Thanksgiving, and the whole family's there, and the trash can's filled, and then 90-year-old grandma starts to take out the trash. Like what, like most people would be like, you know, I almost said Gideon, you know, because it's my, like, go get the trash, you know, like, don't let grandma take out the trash. Like, so, that this isn't who's supposed to be doing this. And so there's almost like this, I would think this surreal moment as he's going around and washing the feet of the disciples. Now we know from Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus has already shared that he they didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all. Paul would later write in Philippians 2.5, in this great passage where he talks about Jesus being God and that he humbled himself and that uh, he gave of himself. He, he gave his life so that we might live being God, that he emptied himself. This whole great passage about the deity of Christ he begins in Philippians 2, 5, to followers of Christ that we're to have this, this, this same spirit of attitude that Jesus had, this spirit of humility, not to think highly of ourselves. Jesus didn't think highly of himself. He was worthy of all praise and is worthy of all praise. And yet in this situation, he humbles himself and he serves them. And so he's going about doing this. And then he comes to Peter in verse 6. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Like Peter kind of stops him and says, like, time out. Like, this isn't right for you to be washing my feet. And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And I think that Jesus is telling him, like, I get it. You don't understand what's happening, but what I'm beginning to to model for you and to give you the example of is this whole term that, that really in our society and even in the, the business world, this, this term servant leadership, it, it, it originates from Jesus. And he's saying, I'm showing you how you're to, to live your life and I'm showing you how you're to love one another and you don't get it right now. Your mind is still backwards and I'm trying to re- recalibrate your thinking so that you understand the kingdom mentality. And then Simon Peter says, he goes, or let me skip to verse, uh, verse eight. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And so he pushes back. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And I think this is one of those, like it can be so difficult to like receive help or to acknowledge your need for a savior, your need for any sort of uh, help. Like when I look at the pictures of the refugees coming through Ukraine, like what a, what a humbling experience. Like all of us, like for the most part, like a proud Americans, we like to take care of our own. We don't, it's so nice to help, but when it comes time to like receiving, it's, it's, it's hard. And I've seen a lot of prideful people like refuse to like receive help just because of their pride. 
And so here Peter says, no, never, not me. You're not going to wash my feet. I'm not going to let you do what you've done to the other, other people. I am better than that. And then Jesus says, okay, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Like, you're in trouble then. Like, if, if you don't want to do this, if you don't want to acknowledge your need, th- then you're in a pickle. And so it's like this little tug of war between the two of them. And so then Peter decides he's going to pull, you know, instead of pulling, he's going to push a little bit harder. And he says, then not just my feet, but also my hands and my head do the whole thing. And Jesus is like, Peter, you're not the one writing the rules here. We like to write the rules. We like to tell God how he's supposed to do business, don't we? I mean, that's, that's just the reality. We think we know better. And so Jesus says, he, in verse 10, he who is bathed <clears throat> needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. And so he sort of, this, 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 this passage to read commentators sort of discuss this, uh, there's confusion. They're sort of like, man, what's Jesus saying? Like, so some will say, well, just from a very practical perspective, like, hey, if you take a shower, but then you go walk through the dirt, only your feet. So like Jesus is talking just like practically speaking, they were all cleaned and, and good to go, but their feet were dirty. So it's just like just a touch up on their feet. Um, Others take it uh, w- to the like the salvation side of the, of the coin, like like these these disciples, and I think you can make a case for this that these disciples trusted Jesus. They were clean. They had believed in Him. They were walking with Him. But for those uh, who have trusted in Jesus, that doesn't mean that you don't like get dirty in the world. That like we're exposed to things. That we need constant forgiveness. We're secure in our relationship with God but we need daily confession of sins in order to restore the relationship. And he says, you're all clean, speaking about all of the disciples. But he says, ah, but, but except for one of you. Now remember, there's Judas. He's got that 30 shekels burning a hole in his pocket. He's got to come up with his plan, like how am I going to betray Jesus? He's already shook hands with the leaders and I can only imagine him like burning, like just kind of the nervousness about like, because Jesus is going to speak in a way that the other disciples have no clue what's really going on. They have no idea who the guilty party is. But if you're the guilty party, I could just imagine the adrenaline and the tear. He says, for you are clean, but not all of you. Verse 11, John gives some commentary. For he knew, that's Jesus For Jesus knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So I think he's giving some commentary, sort of in hindsight, looking back that Jesus, while he's doing all of this, he knows Jesus wasn't caught off guard, which even more so the action of Jesus washing their feet, Jesus knew who would betray him. The, The picture is that he's washed all of their feet. He comes to Peter, which means he's already washed Judas's feet. Can you imagine knowing that somebody is about to stab you in the back and to turn on you and for you to go and to serve them and humble yourselves before them in this way of, of like intimacy and love? It's, it's hard for me to fathom. And yet this is what Jesus is doing here. 
The reality is it's what Jesus has done for all of us. Like he didn't wait for us to get good in order to love us while we were yet sinners, while we were corrupt, while we were giving our finger to him, going against him. He died for us. He loved us. He's moved us closer to him. So this is like this powerful picture. Then in verse 12, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? So Jesus is back. He's sitting at the table. He asks this question. He says, hey, guys, do you know what's just happened? That's a really good question, Jesus. And I, if we look at the history of the disciples, I think it's safe to say most of the time they had no clue what he was doing in the moment. Like it took them a while to process what actually happened. And he's about to teach them and explain to them what he did, why he did, what he expects from them now that he's done it. In verse 13, he says, You call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for so I am. I think this is an, a, an important clause for as we go out into the world and we experience people and there'll be, there'll be skeptics who have never read the Bible, they claim to be theologians and they understand the Bible through and through. And they say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. There's nothing farther from the truth. This is just like one little picture. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and, and you're right. You got that part correct because I am. So he's not denying that he is the Messiah, this this, this promised one that was initially promised back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Verse 14, he continues, he says, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's saying, stop fighting amongst one another. Stop fighting over who's going to be the greatest amongst you. Stop fighting over who's going to be number two in the kingdom. If you want to be like me, you begin to serve sacrificially one another. Don't, don't think about being greatest. Think about being the least and giving of yourselves and becoming like me. Verse 15, for I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. So he says in this last moment, this night in which I'm going to be betrayed, this time the next day he's going to be in in the tomb buried, the whole world is going to be turned upside down. And he said, this very last moment, the thing that I'm giving to you is this mental image of you seeing me at your feet, cleaning your, your feet. He's like, this is what I want you to see. I want you to see and to remember this example so that you can then apply it in your own life. That you also should do as I did for you. Verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you that a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Again, Paul would write in Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourself. This attitude is the spirit of humility that Jesus had with his apostles, with the world, that he came as God. He stepped out of heaven. He lived his life perfectly. He was condemned for a crime that he didn't commit. 
or he, he died for claiming to be God, which he did do that part. But he, but he, he was innocent. He, he wasn't guilty of any crime. And that we're told as his followers that we're to have that same spirit of humility, yet we tend to think more highly of ourselves. We tend to have pride. We tend to think that we're better than that. Like, I don't need to take out the trash. Grandma can take out the trash because what she's done lately, you know, like that's an extreme picture, but we do it with little things. And he said, this is the example I'm the master, you're my servant, I'm your Lord, you're the saved one. If I, as the one who am greater, am doing this, then you have no excuse. You think you were wronged? You think somebody hurt you? You think somebody did something that was so bad that's unforgivable? Jesus had worse, and he forgave. Jesus had worse, and he loved. And so there's no situation that you can, you can fill in the blank with to say, I'm exempt from this. The reality is, is Jesus forgave. I've been forgiven. I've received this. So therefore, I can offer the same forgiveness, not because I'm a good person, but because God has humbled me. And in verse 18, back to Judas the getting hot in his seat, the really uncomfortable. I mean, it's, it's challenging to just to process what Jesus is saying and to, to live out what he's encouraging us to live out. But then I can only imagine Judas, and then Jesus doesn't let Judas off the hook, verse 18. I do not speak, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but so that it is fulfilled, that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Again, Jesus claimed to be God. He acknowledged that he was deity. And so what he's telling them in this moment he said, before I haven't revealed all of the prophecy concerning me, but right now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know so that when it happens, you don't have to be discouraged because none of the 11 understood what Judas was about to do. They still didn't quite get the things that were about to unfold against Jesus. And he's saying there was prophecy that there would be one that would eat from my, the bread that I offer them, that they're that, that he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me, that there would be the sabotage. And he said, I know who I've chosen. I know who Judas is. I know what Judas was going to do. This isn't like, you know, I'm batting pretty good. I chose 11, but I missed one. No, he chose the 12, knowing that one would betray him because this prophecy had to be fulfilled. And he says, so when this happens, when you recognize that the one who is amongst you betrays me, and I'm turned over to the authorities, and you see what's going to unravel, unravel in the next 24 hours, don't get mad at Judas. Recognize that this was all done according to prophecy so that you could believe that I am indeed the Messiah. He tells them this so that they would have the information to believe. So that, verse 19, when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you that he who receives whomever 
I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sends me. This idea of sending, it goes back to verse 16. Verse 16, verse 16, that's, uh, sorry. Uh, A slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And so now he's saying, the father has sent me to the earth. And then as the story unfolds, he's going to be sending them out into the world. And so this kind of like when John, like his one theme, he always, what's John's one theme when he preaches? Oh, you didn't do a good job, John. Intimacy. Intimacy with God. So I paid attention. <laughs> but it's like this intimacy that if you receive Jesus and you're, so, you're intimate with him, and then that means because of your relationship with Jesus and you have a relationship with the Father, and then when you go out, you're, you're basically going out on behalf of the Father. And it's just this, this, this picture of, of, of intimacy that they have now through Christ. And verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and he testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. I think that the intensity of the moment, the recognition of what's about to happen, we know that from this evening, they're going to move to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is going to pray. He's going to be in anxiety. He's going to be like, and so distressed that his sweat, his capillaries are going to pop and like blood is going to come out with his sweat. He's going to pray and ask the Father, if there's any way for this to occur uh, it, through a different pass, path, let this pass. And so the, the, the moment and the pressure and the weight of what is going to happen upon Jesus, that the weight of the world and our sin is going to be pressed upon him, you can just feel it building in the moment. When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking. They had no clue. Like Judas was one of them. It wasn't like he looked like a rattlesnake and it was like, oh, he's the bad one. They're looking around going, is it me? Is it you? Like, who is he talking about? Are we in the right group? This doesn't make sense. We all love him. We care for him. We've been with him for the last three years. But there's Judas. He knows. He's got that 30 shekels burning a hole in his pocket. Imagine this was very uncomfortable for him. There was one reclining on Jesus' bosom. This is how John the author relates to himself. He doesn't mention himself by his own name in his writing here. Throughout the Gospel of John, he only refers to himself as one for whom Jesus loved. I think it was a picture of John's humility this guy who, when they walked through the Samaritan area and he asked Jesus, like, hey, do you want us to pray fire to come down and burn them all up because they're not a part of us? This, uh, what, who Jesus referred to as one of the thuns of thunder. In his old age, he was so moved by what Jesus did and taught him that all his message was about love and that he had received Jesus's love, that he had become that humble. And so here he writes, there was Reclining, there was reclining on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. He's speaking about himself. So Simon Peter, the old guy in the group, gestures to him, gestures to John, the author who's writing this, and he said to him, "Tell us, tell us who it is of whom he's speaking." He's like, "Tell us who it is. See if you can get out of him. You're close to him." 
you're the cute one. You're the little kid brother in our family. It's like, you're the tightest. You can manipulate him, like figure out who it is. And he's like leaning on him. And so verse 25, John is the youngest. Peter's the oldest. John, in verse 25, uh, he leaning back thus on Jesus's bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? This is, I imagine, was a dangerous question to ask because they didn't know who it was and the fear of, like, could it be me? Like, like there's the, there's, Judas knows who it is, but the guys who are there, they, they have no idea who it is. And then the fear that each one of them, in, in some sense, it seems like would rightly appraise themselves to recognize that all of us have a breaking moment. All of us have this like point where we could fail and likely fail. If we have pride, the odds that you'll fall are pretty high. And so they're looking around like, please, I don't want it to be me. Like I recognize it could be me, but I don't want it to be me. Like this, this whole question is a terrifying question. Like don't ask the questions that you don't want to know the answer to, you know? Verse 26, Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Uh, the Bible knowledge commentary says this is the most terrible expression in all of the scriptures. Swindoll says this is the most chilling of all expressions in the scriptures. This whole, this transaction that suddenly now Satan enters into the heart of Judas to carry out. It, it's, it, it, it's scary, it's terrifying, it's concerning, but it looked like nothing. Like if you were there, it looked like nothing because as the story unfolds, it wasn't like in this moment, even when they asked the question and Jesus says, oh, I'm going to give a little piece of bread. I'm going to dunk it in some of the vinegar or whatever, and I'm going to pass it to the guy, and that'll be your clue. Even with everything that's said here, and we're told that then Satan slips into Judas's heart. For everybody that was there watching, none of this gave it away. Jesus said to him, to Judas, what you do, do quickly. Go on. Go carry out your plan. You've been paid. Go make it happen. But in verse 28, now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to them. For some of them were supposing because Judas, Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was... And it was night. So he does everything. Judas knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about. The 11 of them had no clue. They recognize that one of them is going to betray Jesus. And it's like right before their eyes, and they don't see it. And so often that happens to us, that like right before our eyes, God is doing something or Satan is doing something, and we don't even see it. Sometimes we're a part of Satan's plan. Sometimes we're not. Like, like it's so hard sometimes to see the things because we, our, our minds aren't there. We're thinking in terms of our, our flesh and our world, and we can, we can so easily miss what God is doing right in our midst. I do think this is like an important lesson that we take the word of God seriously, but also with great humility. The Pharisees thought they had it all figured out, and they missed the Messiah right before them. So Judas is gone. 
And then in verse 31, therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, he's about to teach um, some of the most meaningful and important lessons that the New Testament has to offer. I, I mean, that's, that's probably not an un, that's probably unfair statement. But there's an intimacy from now until chapter 17. Judas is gone. Jesus has these, uh, these disciples who would become apostles of the early church. And Jesus says in verse 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. This, uh, this is like language that's very difficult to understand. It, and it, it comes out in the translation because it's like Jesus said now is, or it could be was. Like trying to figure out what had happened in this moment, Jesus has said over and over again that his hour hadn't come. The hour has now arrived. And in this moment, Jesus is beginning the process of being glorified through the work of the cross. So that the Son of Man is glorified. This is a reference to to Daniel, that the Messiah would be lifted up, that God's plan in his redemptive story would become manifest. And so it's all coming to light. Verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus recognizes, like the, it's like the end of the road like for himself. And they're not going to be able to journey with him over this next three days, but it's necessary that they go through that. And so now he has to give them everything. Um, There's something about the end of life. uh, I don't even, like I think when we get to the end and we have these moments, like this week was like like an emotionally charged, I don't see my kids here, but it's all like, I uh, could be wrong, but no, Anna's shaking, no. But like on Tuesday, my dad, like my dad calls, and I would say this for my kids, like they were kind of aware of it. But so my dad calls in the evening, and it was a very different, like just he'd been discouraged, and he's like, I think I'm ready to go, and I'm just like, and and he's just kind of like wanting to make peace with everything, and I'm like, there's peace, and so he's trying to talk, but then all of a sudden it's like he's not talking to me as his kid, he's talking to me as a pastor, and it's like, hey, what's going on? And he's like, well, I kind of. I kind of think you have more experience at this than I do. And I'm like, yeah, I think you're kind of right. <laughs> like, like, I, like part of my job, I do deal with, like I deal with that a lot. And he started asking me like what he thought, what I thought and what I could say. And it was just, this is like really, um, you, you know, like when you start dancing with like the end of life, there is something like, well, this is my experience, dad, but I haven't gone there. Like, I can tell you what I've seen and what I believe and what I think. And then he's like, yeah, I, I see that. And it just, it was like a very like powerful and intimate moment between like father and son and pastor and like this. And I see this in Jesus, like Jesus isn't like his, his uh, natural life isn't coming to an end, but he recognizes that his life is within hours. The, the, the death process is going to begin for him. 
And so he's sharing with them. He's like, I'm going to this place, and you can't come. And the most important thing I can tell you as I leave you, like the thing I need you to take to heart and carry out with you to the end, he says, I, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This new commandment. What was the old commandment? Well, the old commandment, if we were to go back to Matthew chapter 24, I think it's in verse 39, I think I wrote it up there, that's a story of the attorney that was trying to justify himself, and he goes to Jesus and he says, hey, listen, what's what's the greatest command in all of the Bible? Jesus says, well, you're a smart man. What do you think it is? And guy says, to love God with all your heart, soul, strength. Jesus is like, very good. What's the second? Or maybe he asks Jesus, what's the second? And Jesus says, to love others as yourself. So the second, love God with all your heart, and then to love yourself as you love yourself. But now Jesus gives this new command, and if you'll notice a distinction. So he says that you are to love one another, not as you love yourself, but you're to love one another by a different standard. The new standard is Jesus's love. So it's no longer like how I want to be loved, like how I want to love myself. It's how did Jesus love me? And that's a much higher standard. It's a much more sacrificial standard. In this picture, how he opened up this evening, he opened up by doing the work of a slave and washing their feet. He was going to leave this meal and he was going to go to the cross uh, and he's going to be crucified, not because of his sin, but because of our sin this is a standard that's super difficult to maintain, like virtually impossible. But this should be our aim. This should be our, if we are followers of Christ, this should be the motivation of our lives, to love as Jesus loved us. And of course, Simon Peter has to pipe in. Like he said to him, where are you going? (laughs) Like, can I go? Like, why can't I go? And Jesus says, where you go, you cannot follow me now. Like, Peter, I'm, I'm going somewhere and you can't follow me now. Don't miss the but. Circle the but. But you will follow later. He says, you can't go now, but because of what I'm about to do, then you will be able to go where I go. Apart from me doing this, it will be impossible for you to go where I am going. The whole next chapter, chapter 14, it opens up with some of the most beautiful picture. Uh, there, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And Peter wouldn't give up in verse 37. Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Peter's making this bold statement. And he, he, can't, he, he can't fulfill what he's saying, and Jesus is going to call him on it as a training tool. Like he's going to call him on it so that when it happens, he'll get it, and he'll have his aha moment. And then Jesus is going to restore him back into his, his place. Peter moves from pride to humility. 
Peter, who wouldn't let Jesus wash his feet. Peter, who says, I'll go and die for you, ends up denying him in just moments. Like, Peter, ultimately, by the end of his life, tradition holds that when they were to put him to death for following Christ, which they did, tradition holds that when they crucified him, he pleaded with them not to crucify him regular because he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. And so tradition holds that they crucified him upside down. Like brings tears, like Peter wasn't perfect. When Jesus raises from the dead and Peter sees him after he's risen from the dead, it's like everything changes. Peter becomes a humble man. And so what do we do with this passage? Like I, I see four things. I see Jesus's example. Jesus's example is that like him, if we are his followers, we are to be servants, that we are to, to serve and to love one another with humility I see in this passage that Jesus provides evidence throughout the New Testament. There's this, this evidence-based for following after Jesus. There's evidence that supports that Jesus is the Messiah that he claims to be. In today's passage, he says, I'm telling you this beforehand so that when it happens, you'll have the evidence that you need to believe upon me. We can never remove faith. We can never take away the faith element But this isn't just blind faith. There's evidence all over the place that supports who Jesus is. You go to Israel, all of the archaeological digs support the Bible. It's not like as they dig, they go, ah, there's some inconsistencies. No, every time they dig and they stumble across something, there's more evidence towards the claims of the Bible. We see in this passage that what Jesus longs for out of us is to trust him. That as we look at him, as we, uh, you know, sort of uh, audit him, like if this was a college class, like we're kind of auditing him just to kind of see, uh, is this true or is this not true? Like at the end of the day, he wants us to move to where we say, you know what? I believe the evidence is overwhelming. I'm going to place my faith in him and trust him with my soul. And then as we do that, the final step that I see from this passage is he wants us to live it out. He doesn't just want us to have fire insurance so that when you die, you don't go to hell, you go to heaven. No, he wants you to have eternal life now and that your life looks different and how you live out your life, it's different from that of the world. Before we do communion, I want to read a quote from, you can start working on your communion packets. I know they take some work. Swindoll says on this, if you have a fish symbol on your car, that's fine. People will associate you with a movement. Do you display a cross? Nothing bad about that. People will link you to a religion. If you carry a Bible everywhere you go, people will assume you attend a particular church. If, however, you display love that is authentic to the core, observable love, then people will know you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought that was such a good quote, especially as we conclude with taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, we have the wafer. Let be careful here. And you have the little juice packet here. These items are a, a symbol that originate to this night. I, I speculate that we'll do communion a lot of times over the next six weeks leading to to Easter, but we have the little wafer that's a symbol of Jesus' body that was broken for us. 
It was broken for us. It was an example for us of how we're to love and to sacrifice for others. We see the the juice, which is symbolic of his blood. I would propose the eternal covenant, which tells us that through Jesus' work on the cross, when we come to faith in him, we are secure. It doesn't just cover us until next Sunday. It doesn't cover us for the rest of the day. That we are sinners. And our salvation isn't dependent upon our own works. Our salvation is dependent upon the work that Jesus did on the cross. And so we, we take communion to remind ourselves what he did for us. We take communion to remind ourselves the example that he set for us. We take communion to restore our faith in him. We take communion to remember that this is the example that we're supposed to follow in our day-to-day lives. Father, we do thank you for this story of Jesus' last night on earth. We thank you that he stepped down from heaven to lead a perfect life for us. We thank you that he came to earth to be the, the, the perfect lamb. We thank you for the many, many, many prophecies and covenants that were fulfilled in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that we can find security in you. We thank you that there is hope and assurance and salvation through the cross. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people who see Jesus clearly, that we would be impacted by the grace that he has poured out into our lives. We pray that you would help us to be filled by your spirit so that we would be able to live out this kind of love that you have called us to live out. Father, we pray that you would help us to see the examples and opportunities that you place before us each and every day, opportunities to love and to serve uh, our fellow creation, fellow humans, whether they know you or not, people for whom Christ died. We pray, Father, that you would help us to become faithful followers of yours. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.